Hello everyone and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Richard Chotton. Richard is increasingly known as the author of The Choice Factory, a best-selling book on how to apply findings from behavioural science to advertising. But it would be wrong to dismiss Richard's impressive career as a media planner and publications of his work in the likes of AdMap, The Drum and Marketing Week, to name just a few, which is where he first caught our eye. Richard is undoubtedly one of the smartest in the comms world, and I would urge everyone listening, regardless of industry, to pick up a copy of The Choice Factory. Significant praise for the book comes from various angles, including several of our heroes, Rory Sutherland, Dave Trott, Mark Ritson and Phil Barden, who referred to it as catnip for the industry. That's high praise, Richard. Welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Good to speak to you. Now, to um, limber up the grey matter, we like to ask yeah. seven quick-fire questions. So, Richard, coffee or tea? Coffee, definitely. Mac or PC? Claims data Mac, observed data would definitely be PC. I can't even use a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the cat image. Cat or dog? Yeah. Uh, cat, definitely. Cat. Football or rugby? Football. Print or digital? Print. Ritson or Sharp? Both. <laughs> can't believe you dodged that yeah. Theresa May or Brian May uh, neither <laughs> I've balanced the last one up Yeah. now before we dive into your book I'm keen to know your background so mm. two questions to kick us off what was your first job and what was your first proper job uh, so first ever job I had quite a few random summer jobs was probably uh, bagging manure for a, a, a local farm. I did all sorts of stuff like glass collecting. I was a, a, a dressed up as Mr. Blobby for children's parties, door-to-door <laughs> sales, all sorts of uh, random jobs. But then, yeah, the first proper one was uh, a media planner working at an agency uh, called Visium, uh, or BBJ actually at the time. And I was there for yeah there for four or five years before going to, to Zenith. And the tragic story of Kitty Genovese was, was rather pivotal moment for you was ah yes yes so one of the clients that i was working on when i went over to zenith this was about 2004 was the was the blood service and i can remember one i was stuck in a taxi and we'd had a slightly uh bad client meeting results hadn't gone very well and as i was on the way back i I was midway through reading the tipping point by malcolm gladwell and at the back of that book uh he tells the story of Kitty Genovese. So she was a bar worker in New York, and early hours, March 1964, um, was it March 13th, 1964, she's on, she's on her way home, she parks her car about 100 yards from her house, and then unfortunately, on the walk to the front door, she's spotted by a man called Winston Mosley. And uh, as she's walking those last few yards, Mosley attacks her, stabs her, and kills her. Now, within a few days, this is front page news on the, on the New York Times, which uh, might not sound surprising because it's brutal murder, but in that year there were there were 636 other murders and none of them made the front page of the Times. And the reason this one made the uh, front page was that supposedly 
it definitely is a supposedly, supposedly 37 other people saw that attack and did nothing to intervene. So what the New York Times interpreted it as was it was a symptom of a kind of moral decay of the, the city. You know, they were shocked that so many people could witness this attack and, and, and do nothing. But there were two psychologists, Bib Latin and John Darley, who, who heard about the exact same incident and thought the Times had got it the wrong way around. But it wasn't that no one helped despite so many witnesses. It was that no one helped because there were so many witnesses. You know, they argued there was a, a diffusion of responsibility uh, among the crowd. And then over the next few years, they ran lots of different experiments. You know, good psychologists didn't just argue you know, their point about diffusion of responsibility from a theoretical perspective. They set up a huge amount of experiments to try and prove their point. So they'd get a colleague to pretend to have an epileptic fit, for example. They'd stage an emergency. And then they would monitor to see if strangers came to that colleague's aid. And they set those uh, emergencies up so that either they were viewed by one person or a, a, a group of people. And their key finding was that uh, people were up to twice as likely to help if they saw that person, uh, or if they were on their own when they saw that person. So the psychologist coined, coined a phrase called the bystander effect, the idea that if you ask for uh, help, the more people you ask, the less likely anyone individual has come to your aid. Now, if you go back to 2004, when I first read about this, you know, on the blood service, I remember thinking, you know, good God, this is exactly the problem that uh, we face. You know, we are going out and asking everyone to donate blood. And just as Latinay and Darley suggest, most people are ignoring us. So having read about that, I went and spoke to the creative agency, a lovely agency called DLKW, great strategy down there called Charlie Snow, and said to them, look, why don't we just make a really, really small tweak to the creative Stop going out and saying blood stocks are low in England, please donate. Instead, say blood stocks are low in Birmingham or Brentwood or Basildon. Mm. And that very small tweak, but one that was aimed at overcoming a specific psychological hurdle. You know, when we saw the results in a couple of weeks' time, we saw that they had improved by you know, 10, 15 percent. Now, that to me was a bit of a revelation. You know, up till then, working in an agency, people just weren't talking about, or certainly in the media agency I was working. They weren't talking about psychology. They were, you know, if ever discussed, it was just dismissed as this irrelevant, pointy-headed academic stuff. But here, albeit on a very small scale, was a example where we could take a well-known psychological finding, take it over to a problem our clients are facing, and see a very, very tangible improvement. And, and you did see that improvement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 10, 10 feet, oh, 15 percent. I mean, it was 15 years ago. Like I said, the exact number, 10 to 15 percent ish was the, was the rough uh, improvement in terms of cost per response. And then that, you know, that kind of got me, me hooked from there. I thought, well, if there's this one experiment, are there others? And of course, you know, anyone with a past knowledge will know that psychology is not just the bias and effect, it's hundreds and hundreds of experiments and biases. And if you immerse yourselves in those, the great thing with that range of experiments is that there will be an experiment out there, an insight out there that it won't necessarily solve the exact challenge you've got, but it'll get you some way to solve it. It'll give you a different angle to approach it. So it's a, you know, a phenomenally relevant topic, I think, behavioural science and social psychology. Absolutely. And do you think that the industry is more receptive to having that conversation now than, than perhaps when you first read this story? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I still don't think it's receptive enough. Uh, I still I think we should be spending you know, half our 
time talking about psychology and how we use it. But there, it, it, there's been a noticeable change since that uh, uh, 2004. And I think, you know, uh, Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize, Kahneman publishing Thinking Fast and Slow, which has now sold over 2 million copies. Uh, Rory Sutherland's work with the IPA, Thaler again winning uh, uh, another Nobel Prize for um, his, his work in behavioural science, behavioural economics. All of that, I think, has gradually just led to a, an increased interest from clients. And I've certainly noticed in the last 18 months or two years, a significant increase of clients coming and saying, can you solve this uh, from a behavioural science angle? And I think what we'll see is once once more and more clients do that, agencies will follow the money and they will begin offering more and more of these services. I think we'll see a, a virtuous circle. Yeah, agreed. And, and likely be much mm. more effective because of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all, all psychology is, is the, uh, also psychology is, is, the, is the study of why humans make the decisions they do. I mean, it, I mean, it seems almost ridiculous to, 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 to kind of uh, question the, the effectiveness of this. And you think that what we're trying to do as marketers is change people's decisions. We're trying to get them to spend a bit more with our brand, buy a brand more regularly, mm. um, switch from a, a competitor, pay a premium, whatever it is, all of that's behaviour change. So you know, why wouldn't you draw on this 120-year uh, study of what makes for efficient behaviour change? It's hard to think of a more relevant topic. Mm. Agreed. I think in truth... Um, Sadly, most marketers are, are at least some part magpie and we seem to be attracted to the, le- the latest sparkly piece of technology and approach problems back to front, cart before the horse too, too often. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, think, I think you're right on that. I think there's, um, there is a fascination with the, uh, the, the latest new thing. I think people are concerned about seeming old-fashioned mm. and sometimes if you... Uh, come along to a meeting and start telling people about an experiment from the 1890s I think they think you're insane but there's that wonderful Birnbach quote of it's fashionable to talk about the changing man but as communicators we should be concerned with the unchanging man and all these biases if they were genuine findings in the first place they still work today you know the, the fundamentals of human nature which probably shaped by eons of evolution aren't changing in 10 15 20 100 years yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, something I never tire of discussing myself is 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 the pratfall effect. Can you explain oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit a bit about this and, and its application in in marketing? Yes. So it's, it's the idea. That it, it was a phrase. So pratfall firstly means a small blunder in, in American. I think it's a slang, uh, and it was an idea coined by Elliot Aronson, who was a Harvard professor in the sixties. And, and in nineteen sixty six, he runs this experiment where he gets one of his colleagues to take part in a quiz gives the guy uh, the answers to the quiz. So he does amazingly well. It's 92% of the questions right, wins the quiz by miles. But then as the quiz is finishing, he makes uh, a small blunder. He stands up and he spills a cup of coffee down himself. Now, Aronson has recorded all of that, and then he takes that recording and plays it to people. Uh, but he plays it in one of two versions. Either people hear everything and state found a great performance, or just the great performance. And then Aronson quizzes them on, or questions them on how appealing they find this contestant. And on all the metrics of appeal, the contestant is found to be significantly more appealing if people have heard the mistake 
as well as the great performance. So he coins this idea, the pratfall effect, essentially the idea that people or products who exhibit a flaw become more appealing. And can you give us any examples of any known brands who have, who have taken advantage? Oh, of I, I, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things here is, uh, so he, that experiment was 1966. If you go back seven years earlier, so before he did that experiment, seven years beforehand, uh, Birnbach was applying this by show. Gr- great creatives, great observers to the human nature have often realised some of these insights already. So I think the Birnbach line was a small admission great gains a great acceptance. And you can see that in two of the great DDW cam- campaigns. It's Avis. You see it in, Yeah, Avis, so they're meaning they're unpopular essentially. You know, we're number two, so we try harder. Uh, VW that admitted the Beetle was both slow and ugly. Ugly is only skin deep. America's slowest fastback. Um, so, you know, again and again, that agency had some phenomenally successful campaigns around it. But, you know, you run through some of the best ad campaigns ever. You could easily do a list of the 10 best. There's lots of elements of objectivity there. And you could argue, well, you know, VW, Avis, Guinness, good things come to those who wait, admitting it's slow. Uh, Stella, reassuringly expensive, admitting it's highly priced. Listerine, the taste you hate twice a day, admitting it tasted awful. It is a... It, sorry, it'd be wrong to say it's a commonly used tactic. Now, I've done experiments where I've looked at the proportion of ads in a newspaper or a series of newspapers using the practical effect, and it's a tiny, tiny percent. But, it, but if you look at it in terms of the best ever adverts, a, a large number have used the practical effect. And, and perhaps lesser known, but given A, you've been in Amsterdam recently, and B, it's a personal <laughs> yes, yeah, favourite, yeah. it'd be wrong not to mention the Hans Brinker hotels. Oh, gosh, yeah. If people don't know that one, um, I think, well, is, the, is it Kessel's Kramer, I think, the agency? I might have pronounced that. I've got the other side um, it's, it's an amazing campaign. Definitely, definitely worth uh, Googling. I think it was Maybe. free wireless available with the neighbour's password or, or something. That's like right, that. yeah. No, that's, that's an amazing one. And there's some very crude ones as well. Uh, now more dog shit in the entrance or something along those lines. But is, that's a good point, though. So is, is the pratfall effect in part down to humour in as much as we typically remember things which are funny or at least, you know, witty? Yeah, I, 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 I think one thing is there's never one single reason. You know, I think there's all life's kind of shades of grey and complexity. I think, it, I, think the, I think you're absolutely right that admission of a flaw gives you great humorous potential. You, know, you look appealing. I think there's also elements of one of the big hurdles probably any secondary to noticeability is probably believability and most people think advertisers are either partial to the truth of the best or lying so if you go out and admit a flaw you have tangibly admitted a weakness sorry you tangibly demonstrate your honesty and therefore uh, all your other claims become more believable so there's also an argument of um if you look at those great campaigns they didn't just pick a weakness randomly they also are very careful. They pick a weakness that has a mirror strength. You know, so you go out and say, yes, we taste awful, as Listerine or Buckley's, probably an even better example, um, a Canadian mouthwash. Uh, you go out and say you taste awful, but then the mirror strength of that is people assume, well, med- bad-tasting medicines are normally pretty potent. So you're tapping into a, a strength at the same time. So I think there's, yeah, there's a number of reasons why it works so well. Could could you even argue that that someone like Boris Johnson has built his entire career on affections won via the pratfall effect, but he's probably also demonstrated a tipping point where he's just become a prat? Well, <laughs> yeah, like, 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 uh, actually, so so 
with all these experiments, there's, 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 there's normally an initial experiment, and then there are experiments looking at some of the nuances. So a couple of the nuances of the experiment, um, one by a lady called Kato, and I think this is a single experiment, so you've got to treat it with a bit of caution. Mm-hmm. She found that men, for example, were more um, uh, prone to being swayed by the pratfall effect. Uh, Aaron Sertz, which you know, might explain uh, some of the categories that use it, certainly historically. Um, the second one was Aronson himself found the pratfall effect was very effective if people had a existing credibility. If they didn't have that credibility, it could actually backfire. So in one of his variants of the experiment, he uh, gets the contestants to get most of the questions wrong. The contestant gets 35% of the questions right, looks a bit thick, and then makes the mistake. And in that scenario, really plays out those two versions of the, of the clip. If people have heard the poor performance and the mistake, they think he's less appealing and if they just hear the poor performance. So, so I mean, with Boris Johnson, you, that, that, that might well be true, that while he was, um, while he had a, while people were maybe judging it, yeah, or, or maybe while they were judging him on non-political uh, matters, but the, you know, the, the, his command of the English language and his wonderful ability to uh, come up with crazy anecdotes and analogies, when he's making mistakes there, it's very quite charming and, 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 and bolsters him. Maybe when he's associated with some more high-profile policy failures, suddenly that, that, that sense of confidence is lost and uh, no longer so charming. There might, there might also be them, actually. I mean, the other one is, and this is, I think, Rory Sutherland makes this irony. He, he says, look, everyone thinks people are flawed or brands are flawed. So if you don't go out and tell people where your flaw lies. It's not that people think you're flawless, it's that they don't know where the flaw lies and they worry it might lie somewhere important. So if you go out and admit a flaw in a weak, in, 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 in an unimportant area, then uh, you're kind of protecting yourself. And maybe, I don't know, maybe, yeah, go on. That represents a very nice bridge into a discussion around reviews, really. We, we, ah, wrote, yes. we wrote a piece recently on a company who we have, um, well, presumably was founded in the pre-digital review age because they're called one-star tyre fitters. But am I right <laughs> in thinking that five-star average reviews, for that very reason you've just mentioned um, around Rory's points, aren't therefore as beneficial as, say, a, a 4.2 or a 4.3 review? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, so um, it does depend on the category. Uh, there is a lovely study, a real-world study by Northwestern University, 111,000 reviews, and what they find is that they cross the score of the review, one being awful, five being perfect, with likelihood to then go and purchase that good. And for 22 product categories, they see, the same, they see the same broad pattern. As the review gets better, people become more likely to purchase. But then at some stage, it does depend by category, between 4.2 and 4.5 out of 5, at some stage in that window, likelihood to purchase peaks. And then if the review gets any better, likelihood to purchase declines. You know, the, 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 yeah, their argument, as you said, is that perfection is too good to be true. You know, people know from bitter experience there are always trade-offs. They just don't trust it. We, um, one of our clients, funny enough, an independent optician, um, mm. we had a, we had a conversation around this because they were alarmingly receiving 
a significant majority of five star reviews and we couldn't get them to drop their service sufficiently to bring it slightly <laughs> yeah. down to something that was more believable. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd ever recommend something worse. I mean, uh, uh, I think it's more that some people are, might well be being a bit, you know, dodging. They'll only put on the perfect uh, uh, reviews and they think they're making their case more persuasive, but they're actually, yeah, to uh, great because as I say, people people know that nothing's perfect. What they ideally want to see is look, they spot a bad review, go and look at that. And if they see the reason for rejecting the product is one that wouldn't um, affect them, then, or they don't see as consequential, then it probably right. will make them more likely to, to go on a purchase. Because as I say, they, they, know, you know, they know there's going to be a problem out there. But if they're aware that it's only in a, a minor area, it can it can set their mind at ease. Absolutely. If they know what that mm. might be, then it's much easier to mm. um, to anticipate the service that you're likely to receive were you yeah. to purchase. Yeah. yeah. And the, the one that does bit I like about that review study is there is a there's a criticism sometimes of behavioural science or social psychology that um oh this is you know based on what's called a weird subject. Uh, it's West, you know, it's based on students at Harvard and Cornell. Mm. What can we really extrapolate from that? And it's called weird because it stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So this is where the uh, samples coming coming from. But if you then look, that might have been a more cutting attack in the nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies. But a lot of the really famous experiments, the last ten or fifteen years, are done often without people knowing they're in the experiment, like that review study uh, or Cialdini's Tau study. Uh, and they, they, they're done using observed data in the real world amongst a, a representative group. So that validity is not limited to laboratory studies. It, it, it works just as much in the real world. Can you tell our listeners about, again, something that we increasingly talk about, uh, not least when we're discussing media with our clients, which is signalling theory. Now, one of our... Mm favorite examples is is from bob hoffman um they often are who explains imagine you walk into a crowded room and announce you're the most attractive person in the room you've declared one thing but you've actually signaled something entirely different that you're you're a bit of a twat so <laughs> yes yeah is, is that is that right yeah uh, oh uh, yeah absolutely the, the, the i think the uh, i mean he has a wonderful way with words i think the the it's kind of essentially uh, the idea that uh, Jeremy Bullmore and Stephen King came up with the 70s that too many and I would recommend there's an amazing book called More Bullmore which is a collection that Walk did of uh, Bullmore's articles and that I think is one of the best books in advertising um, and sorry in, 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 sorry, in that Bullmore drawing on Stephen King work t- talks about the input model versus the output model and he says look too many people believe that what matters is what you say but of course what matters is what the audience take in so you know as as, uh, Bob Hoffman said you know you say one thing the audience takes out almost the 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 polar opposite um and I think that is still something even though it's recognized you know 40 or years ago that that hampers advertising that there is a, a too much of a emphasis on the kind of transmission of a, a, a message rather than the interpretation of the, of the message 
that, that, that actually happens. And it's the interpretation that can be shaped by the media context, the signaling that you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the pratfall effect in essence. I mean, the pratfall effect is a, is a kind of walking example of the problems with believing that output model. You know, and, and outwardly, you're transmitting a mistake. What's coming in, what people are interpreting, though, is that you are human and approachable and uh, appealing. So, yeah, it, 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 it can be a dangerous model that sends us in the, in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually, because I increasingly find and, and, and reading through the Choice Factory um, and, and your studies and finding, I find they're, they're almost nine part signaling and one, point, one part pratfall in some instances. They're rarely exclusively one thing at play. Oh, absolutely. So on one hand, what you see, and there are some experiments where they start running multiple uh, biases in one go and they see a, a cumulative effect. Uh, and there's some nice, yeah, some lovely ones around um, scarcity and anchoring being used at the, used at the same time. Uh, the only thing I think to watch out there is that is that when that, with that multiple use of of biases is um, you know the experience when you go on some of these travel booking sites, and they'll be using hundreds of of biases all at the last time in a very kind of shouty manner. You know, uh, most popular. Uh, destination people like you uh, only three seats 27 people are looking at this right now uh, deal expires in three hours 46 seconds if what I find interesting there is that is almost a um, it, it, it's a bit of a literal minded application I think of behavioral science uh, or, or maybe even it's more more important it's, 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 a, you're probably, it's probably measured in the wrong way so, so what's probably happening there is people are throwing all these biases on, looking at immediate conversion to sale and seeing improvements. What they're probably not doing is um, looking at longer term effects on what people perceive to be the brand. You know, if you create such a negative, unpleasant, unappealing experience, the danger is you're destroying your your your, your brand equity. Um, and I think with these biases, the there is, they, there's just tools, and you still need to use your nous and common sense and uh, judgment in, ha- in how you apply them. And on occasion, for all marketing, it's worth you know, walking away from a short-term improvement in metrics to shore up your l- longer-term performance. Yes, absolutely. Well, a nod to Burnett and Field there, I think. Mm, mm. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. I'm slightly alarmed that we've talked about signalling without mentioning peacocks. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which I've never managed to do. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't. I love the peacock example. I think uh, so. If people aren't aware of the peacock example. Um, there's this wonderful letter from uh, Charles Darwin, I think, in the 1860s, to, to a lady called uh, Asa Gray, and he says, I, I, "The sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick." The idea being, at that stage, he found it perplexing that how could this bird with a giant cumbersome tail exists in a world of natural selection and that kind of puzzle I think was fully solved in, in the 70s by a man called Amot Zahavi uh, and, and, and he argued that it was the very cost of that tail you know the, the, the increasing probability of being caught by a predator that made it a powerful and genuine signal uh, to mates his argument being that only a bird with phenomenal hunting skills, 
genetic strength, ability to evade predators could get away with such a long tail, a cumbersome tail. So it's signal to uh, mates your genuine um, genetic strengths. So his argument was costly signals, signals that can't be imitated fate by you know, peacocks in that sense of, 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 of lower ability, genuinely uh, have more credibility amongst, amongst an audience. Yeah. And then, yeah, then uh, academics like John Kay uh, and Evan Davis, I think, argued that this works in advertising as well. The, and advertising spend, first of all, shows a confidence in your brand because most of that value will be recouped in the, in, in the long term. So only a brand that is confident of their good being so good that you've got to return again and again and again would bother advertising. Mm. And then the, you know, the extrapolation from that is, well, the more extravagant the advertising, you know, the, the greater uh, creative hoopla, the great, the you know, double page spreads, the three minute ads, the huge sponsorships, all of that is signaling a genuine confidence in the brand that acts as a screening mecha- mechanism between uh, confident and, and unconfident brands. And 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 the key part often is is, is the waste as much as it might be the expense i think uh, a great example yes. again from from rory sutherland is that if it was solely the expense without the wastefulness then then the young glitterati would drive around london in arctic lorries not flash sports cars yes yes because um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're so impractical and cannot possibly be used at their intended purpose the sports car is obviously the one that's opted for for that that yeah. Sole yeah. signaling reason yes a- absolutely um and yeah there are some Lovely examples about that waste through history. I mean, there are there are uh, indigenous societies that there were indigenous societies in 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 the USA in Northwest America where they'd have I think potlatch where they would set fire to huge amounts of possession. I mean, these were you know they were signals of uh, wealth because it, as you say it was entirely wasteful. It's um, yeah, it's an interesting observation that I think works beyond advertising in many different areas, but. Again, going back to that measurement problem, if you just optimise the short term, you end up in, in, in kind of problem, problematic areas because you start stripping out the waste. And to begin with, it all looks amazing. You know, you don't notice any of the problems. But over time, the, you, you see a long-term degradation of the uh, brand exit. There's, there's so much around signalling to love, not least. It, it gives us indisputable logic against so much digital misuse which which i think sadly rife in our industry um, and a key point being how we inherently trust messages which are broadcast indiscriminately to large audiences yes. uh, versus the direct one-to-one nature of a lot of the you know digital channels which which admittedly might be highly targeted um, and there's, there's a quote in your book which i absolutely love from from louis heron the, the foreign correspondent at the time oh, yeah, times, yeah. <laughs> when when a politician tells you something confidence always ask yourself quote why is this lying bastard lying to me <laughs> i mean it's, it's logical i mean for you know taking that analogy to, to brands what people know that brands have got a vested interest to um uh, you know paint the, the the best picture of reality so why would they trust them so it is an it's an important metric to to, to, be, to be concerned with and try, try, try to overcome um the, I did a thought experiment. I think I don't think it's in the book. I think you know, in fact, it's, it's not in the book. I haven't published it yet. But we did a, a survey where I can't remember the exact results, but they're broadly right. Uh, 
half the people were told, look, imagine you're chatting with a an MP and uh, he, uh, the MP promises that they're going to increase the investment in speed cameras by 10% next year. How likely it is do you think he's telling the truth? And what we found is I think it was about 40% of people think that the MP is lying. We then did, and, and, sorry, and I finished up, so we've emphasised that, you know, you're on a one-to-one meeting with this guy. Uh, we then do another thought experiment where it's exactly the same thing, but the MP is talking in front of a crowd of you and 99 other people. And in that scenario, the proportion of people who think the MP's lying drops by about half. So, so no one, no one's comparing two side by side, but when we put nationally representative groups into those two different thought experiments, you see a wildly different uh, performance or belief in the message because people are picking up on the fact that it is much more costly to lie in front of lots of people than to lie on a one-to-one basis so yes it's not necessarily digital versus digital it's, it's, i think it is yeah it's broadcast versus personalized that a claim that is made and people know that other people have seen it outdoor being the kind of medium for excellence uh has a greater trust and credibility. At a, a risk of exposing myself as someone who merely regurgitates wiser people's wisdom, I think it's too late for that, really. But Rory Sutherland again gave a wonderful, if you know, slightly daft example recently, which was when we get married, we say our vows in front of all of our family and friends, <laughs> often in in large public spaces. We don't we don't go door to door. Yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rory Sutherland has an amazing gift for her analogies. But yeah, I think it's absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely true. Now, what's interesting, though, is uh, the, and I haven't got around to publishing this either, so this is another one that needs to get, get, uh, get in gear and get out quite quickly, is there is a belief amongst marketers that the problem of trust, like low trust in brands, is a new thing. Uh, and again, that's based on, I think, 500-odd people, marketers have surveyed. vast majority think trust in brands is declining. There is no evidence for that at all. All the long-term tracking mechs of trust show that people don't trust businesses or brands or CEOs, but then they never have done. So the danger with this belief that trust is in decline is that you think, ah, okay, so we've got an, it's a new crisis, it's a new problem, we therefore need a completely new solution. That's not the case. The, the, the same tactics that worked you know, for religion, for marriages, for brands through the years the, the successful tactics that one, once worked to build trust like admitting a weakness like um, uh, making public commitments like costly signaling they will still work today um, and it goes back to your point earlier about this you know bizarre love of what it's almost a narcissism i think this belief that we live in the hardest and most dangerous and most problematic of times as marketers you know mm-hmm. therefore we must be you know far, far better than our predecessors because we have to deal with them. And it's just not true. Um, on that note, a particular <laughs> favourite of mine from the, from the book is, is, is actually Goodhart's Law. Can you, can you talk a little bit around that? Oh, OK, yeah. So um, Goodhart's Law, sometimes called the, 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 the Cobra effect, it's essentially the idea that if there is a sliver of difference between the um, metric that you've set as a target and the underlying objective then you end up with unintended consequences so it's cool it should actually probably be called the rat effect rather than the cobra effect because the there's more historical evidence for the 
the kind of uh, an example with rats. And it was back in so 1902, Hanoi governor realises an outbreak of bubonic plague, wants to try and reduce volume of deaths. So wants to kill lots of rats, doesn't have a large team at his disposal. So he says to the public as a whole, every time you kill a rat, uh, you bring in a tail, give it to me or you know one of my colleagues probably, uh, and we'll pay you a certain amount of money. Now, that's him setting a target to solve a problem. And what first happens is it looks like that is working brilliantly. Kind of sets this task in early spring, I think. March is getting a couple of hundred tails a day. May, it's thousands. And it actually peaks in June. And on a single day, uh, you know, 20,000 tails are handed into the, the, the governor. What then becomes transparent is it getting into summer, is although the metric looks phenomenally successful, there's more and more tails being handed in, the underlying objective of dead rats is not working. You know, there is no, you know, people are seeing just as many rats as they always have. It just so happens that a lot of those rats are now tailless. And what the governor finds on further investigation is he has kind of unlocked the ingenuity of the, the population as a whole. Rather than hunting down and killing rats, what people have been doing is capturing rats, breeding rats, lopping the tails off rats. They're pretty much doing everything but killing a rat because that's just too much of a waste of money. So he then makes a change of policy and says, oh, OK, no longer am I giving people a bounty for rats' tails. And unfortunately, that has another unintended consequence. People just release the rats onto the street because they no longer <laughs> have any value to them. So he's trying to set a target that is not exactly the same as the underlying objective creates these unintended consequences. And on one hand, it's remarkable through history how many times that very, very similar problem has occurred. You know, rats in Vietnam, cobras in Delhi, uh, wild pigs in America. Yet it's, there are also strong parallels with um, marketing. The parallel here being what is what we un, the underlying thing we want is long term sustainable profitable growth. What ends up getting measured though and therefore optimized to is a proxy and there's a different there's a sliver of difference between the proxy and the underlying metric. The proxy tends to be short term sales metrics, click through rates, immediate purchase, and unfortunately, people therefore put all their efforts in in, in those elements look successful for a few years and then as you say there's been a field show by ignoring the longer term they start to reap the uh, problems a couple of years down the line mm. yeah i mean there's there's so much is murky and attrition and, and and again that story shows how easy it is for data to be misinterpreted the idea that just two because two trends move in the same direction it doesn't mean the first caused the second or the second might have caused the third the, the first or there may even be a third at play so um yeah and, and and on that note to kind of take a sidestep into the another area that i find particularly frustrating which is the one around brand purpose i think you made a wonderful point about jim stengel's book grow which is which is a wonderful piece but i think that you did highlight or have highlighted some potential flaws um, in, in the claims around brand purpose. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely fair. So um, 
you know, it's a chapter in the book. It's, it's a slightly different one from many of the others in that the, probably the research into purpose came first. And then I've, I've put it in the book as a, a chapter around wishful seeing. So that's an idea from uh, Brunner and Goodman, you know, back in the 1940s, that people don't see reality as it is. They uh, see what they w- want to see. And my argument was maybe purpose is one of those examples because the it is a very popular idea. But if you probe the studies, it doesn't take long to do the probing. If you probe the studies, you start to see they very quickly fall apart. And one of the studies I looked at in real depth was uh, Stengel's. And actually, at first, I was quite dismissive. I've actually grown to admire him a little bit more, a lot more as a person, because what he does, which I I think is very honourable and a very good thing to do, is he publishes all his data. He publishes his methodology. He publishes his appendices. So he is completely open with his data and, and, and research. And I think that's a very, very admirable thing. And it is not always done. But because he does that, you can actually see the a lot of the flaws with the methodology. So you can see that um, the definitions of brands having a purpose is very, very woolly. So, for example, he'll say Moet and Chandon, the purpose is to turn a drink into celebration or blackberries to connect people. And what you then realise is, well, wait a minute, if we're claiming these brands have had a massive success in the stock market, and that's his underlying central theme you know what we then say well he's got this collection of 50 brands that have done amazingly well in the stock market he says that their uh, consistent factor is all having a brand purpose how people are using that term of brand purpose is very different to the actual definitions in the appendix the appendix is essentially just a description of a product how people use brand purpose is to say it has this you know higher kind of moral moral purpose so, you know, there's, there's quite a few examples there of, you know, also to look at the performance of these stocks that supposedly do so well because they have a brand purpose and they revert to the mean and look at some of the kind of data discrepancies. And if you probe into it, I don't think that you know, anyone would seriously argue any longer that that is a robust uh, research that proves brand purpose in any way. But what's fascinating is that that data, you know, there are sterile, I think there are lots and lots of examples like this in marketing that something, a, a, a research paper, that the headline finding is taken, it's used by thousands and thousands of marketers and millions of pounds are spent behind it, yet with a little bit of digging, you can see that the data is flawed. But why does this happen again and again? You know, myths about millennials being wildly different. You know, Ipsos have done some great data to show that's just not the case. Uh, trust in brand declining. You know, if you dig through... Uh, again, the great work by Ipsos, if you dig through the footnotes of the Edelman reports, you see it's just not true. Brand purpose, again, there's, there's so little evidence. But I think we are guilty as an industry of taking a headline finding and not taking the time and effort to probe into the underlying data. I also think there's a case, uh, particularly mm. on the brand purpose point, of, of a lot of marketers are, are slightly ashamed to be marketers, which is why they come up with these crazy job titles of, of growth hackers and gurus and digital wizards and, and so on and so forth. So having the idea of having a, a, a bigger purpose, mm. of course, is something that drives all of us on a, on, a, on a human level. But actually, it's dangerous to, to allow that to creep into 
what you're preaching as a business. I mean, the recent example of um, the recent Gillette ad is a great example. And, and, you know, we could spend a whole podcast um, debating that one in particular. But I think that in that instance, um, the message is is, is fantastic. But I think there's a lot around the authenticity of who's saying it and their behavior as a company, which which causes you to think, well, actually, is are you just saying are yeah. these words founded on any any anything oh, real? Uh, absolutely. So there's a few things that have to be kind of uncoupled. I think the first is is in that case, I suppose, uh, uh, asking men to behave in a you know, basic, decent human manner is that a good thing? Well, well, wanting people to behave in that way is, is of course a sensible thing. So you have to put I think put that to one side. There's then a, is it something sensible to advertise? Is that the best way to sell raises? And then it becomes a little bit more uncertain, you know, because there is an opportunity cost to having that message rather than another. And I think the, the you know, one of the problems is, does a company, you know, what right does Gillette have to preach to people and patronise them potentially? That, that, that's going to irritate people. And then secondly, as you say, well, is it a genuine belief or is there something slightly cynical about, you know, jumping on a very important social movement to shift a few razor blades? Is that slightly, slightly cynical? And I like, I think there's a Mark Ritson article where he says, look, to know whether you should have a purpose, ideally it's, did, was that thing that you're arguing fundamental to your company's kind of setup? Did you, did you believe in this and was it run through your company from top to bottom before you started advertising? If so, you have a brand purpose. If not, there will be dangerous charges of um, hypocrisy about, about to rise. So you can see why the body shop going for a kind of purpose-driven approach, that is true to their you know, their core. That's a, kind of a very sensible tactic. Whether it is for Gillette is a, is a slightly different matter. I, I, I certainly haven't seen studies and evidence that give us um any proof that purpose is a um a, a business tactic that generates better success than other approaches it's one of those topics where uh the world seems to be divided in two camps and whatever you say to one camp or whatever you say to either camp i guess uh they won't be i don't think they'll be they'll be persuaded it's an example of confirmation bias yeah, yeah, and there's, there's there's so much. The word context has come up a few times. There's so much context to um, take into consideration with anything. And going back to your reference to Mark Ritson's article again, not I don't think he's made the same point directly to P and G, but it's still applicable. Which is, I'd much rather they just paid their taxes than than well, focused on purpose. But that I, I mean, I think that, that is a, I think that's a very interesting point in that there's a what's it, the Burma again? Sorry, quite Burma third time of saying a principle isn't a principle to cost you money one of my frustrations would be that many of the the many of the kind of topics that brands are getting involved in are costless you know it all it is is uh fodder for a a, a tv ad you go back to the original brands of purpose people like Cadbury's and quakers and you know their whole mission everything they did you know they're paying people decent wage, setting up uh, model villages, all these areas. They didn't just pronounce their virtue on big posters. They you know, gave away phenomenal parts of their wealth to make these things happen. That is purpose. And it's an interesting way you want to see action, not just cost, costless signaling. 
so I think that's a that, that is a very fair point. Absolutely. Mm. I'm wary that we're we're heading deep into extra. Yeah, time. and then sorry, I probably should say because I feel, I feel like I maybe jump straight to the uh, criticism of purpose without giving the facts. It's probably worth saying. Uh, I think there is a chapter of the book called Wishful Thinking, and I think that's published. I, I pretty much gave the chapter free to Mumbrella, or, or or a kind of cut down of the chapter. So if people want to see the line by line critique of the Stengel stuff and 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 the data behind it, and that my data is. Uh, yeah, go to Mumbrella because otherwise I wouldn't want to be guilty of just spouting off on that topic. No, of course not. And I didn't back you into a corner there. But no, no, I, no. I, I, know the, I think I jumped straight to the uh, you know, criticism rather than the actual uh, evidence. I think that article was was from last summer, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. It was it ran that. I think that's right. Yeah, but Mumbrella, purpose, wishful thinking, people be able to find it. Now, if, if there's time, assuming there's time, I wanted to talk very briefly, um, because as I say, there, there's rich pickings in the book, but around placebos, simply because I'm a huge fan of placebos. Um, and I, as yet, don't understand why someone hasn't taken them more seriously. Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. So essentially, the idea of the placebo effect, you see it on uh, painkillers, that it's the expectation of uh, something working. If people expect it to be a very strong medicine, it's more likely to have an effect. And uh, Anton de Crane, I think it was, did a systematic review, 12 studies, and he found something, not just a one-off, this is looking at a, a much broader analysis, multiple studies, much, much greater validity, looks at 12 studies and looks at the effect of colour on uh, painkillers effectiveness so exactly the same medication or lack of medication and he found red painkillers were more effective than blue painkillers the argument being red has cultural connotations of strength and efficacy so you get this you know that i think that as a headline factor is kind of reasonably well well known two interesting areas are firstly like all these biases when you start to dig into them that's when they get really interesting and the interesting about placebo effect is the is the nuance to it that it's not just um that it exists it's that it exists with kind of uh quite a few varieties so for example you know you've got the color has an effect the taste the worst taste and the stronger uh, it will be perceived to be uh, the size of the pill can ha- have an effect the whether it's an injection of injection of saline solution uh, versus a, a, a sugar pill will have an effect you know anything that makes it feel like a uh, a bigger intervention regardless if the same active if the active ingredients the same it will have a, a a larger medical effect so you've got this lovely uh, level of, of of nuance is one interesting bit to it the second bit i find fascinating is how rarely it's used so i did this when i look at a book and Probably should go out and do it again with a, a great sample, but I was worried I was just splashing my cash. Uh, <laughs> I went out and got uh, lots of painkillers, and I uh, found that only one in seven painkillers had a used used red. Most were white. So what you're seeing is what's that? Almost eighty five percent of the market ish are ignoring a well known proven finding. You know they are relying on uh, solving people's medical problems by active ingredient, not maximising the effect of the active ingredient by harnessing the placebo effect. So I find it fascinating that 
you can still get phenomenal creative advantage, uh, sorry, sorry, commercial advantage from applying very well-known findings. And and in that example, at what you must assume would be a fairly trivial um, oh, comparative yeah. cost to make the pills red yes, in that instance. I'm sure. I should certainly not a chemist, but I can't believe that colouring a pill red on, on, on you know a production run of millions would, would cost virtually we've got presumably cost virtually nothing yet. It, it's not used, and I think we see these instances again and again. Not you know if it was just pills, maybe there's something uh, pharmaceutical about it, but we see it again and again that work from behavioural science is not applied as uh, widely as it should be. And I think one of the problems is this underlying belief in marketing that we can understand customers or people's motivations by asking them directly. And the problem is if you go and ask someone, does the pill have any effect on your colour? Of course, they'll say no. If you go to people and say, does knowing that this is a popular product affect you in any way? They'll swear blind it doesn't. And too many brands ask people directly what motivates them. They take those claims at face value and therefore they end up with completely the wrong wrong approach which i think is is again if we go back to the to your to your book the choice factory i think most people on the street would probably deny the existence of most of the theories within absolutely yeah or the, yeah if you ask them they think other people are affected by these biases they would yeah. they, they might have a very different answer yeah. yes um we're going to move on to a mm. listener question if we if we may oh, of course yeah Asking the general public for input on anything is notoriously fraught with danger, be it Brexit or boat names, but we um, haven't let us let that stop us. So we, a friend of Gas, Mark, has asked if you have any recommendations on the process of actually writing a book. Well, I didn't really think about this in the time until I think I was chatting with uh, Charlie Snow, who I mentioned at the beginning, a lovely strategist who was at DLKW. And what he said is, oh, I like how you apply chunking to your, the writing process to make it simpler. And I thought, God, that actually, I, that actually did happen without me making, you know, and doing it on any way uh, purposefully, which was the book was a lot, lot easier to write than I think having a single idea with a single thread running through it. It is essentially 25 standalone chapters. And I can remember writing them pretty much one a week. By the end of that week, I was thoroughly sick to death of that bias. And I was really, excited to be starting a new one so if you can chunk it up in any way that would i, I think make the whole process of writing a book much, much, much easier wow i was expecting um i was expecting you to, to to tell me how hard it was to write and that you would never write another one but you did hint earlier you that there's another book in, in yeah yeah no i i, I mean i must have had well, I, bizarrely i'd actually started writing the second one before the first one had been published uh but since it's come out i have i've got i've got a bit behind so I haven't, I haven't progressed any further, but uh, I, I definitely will do. Definitely will do a second. Well, now you can consciously chunk. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And if sorry, when I say chunk, yeah, and if people don't know the phrase chunking, essentially splitting up a big task into 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 lots of little bits. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, we should have clarified that. What advice would you give to your younger self, Richard? Um, I, th- I think I would, you know, worry. A, a lot less. I was always kind of very concerned when I first started out about you know, what clients would think, and you know maybe, or you know what might happen if I took a risk. Uh, and there's there's a you know lovely phrase which is attributed to Churchill, but probably someone else said. But they normally said, are. Yeah, yeah. There's a well, there's a lovely phrase again. Secondly, called Churchillian drift, which is the idea that a person with li- limited fame makes a quote, 
and then it gets attributed gradually to more and more famous people until it ends up with Churchill. It's called <laughs> Churchillian Drift. That's wonderful. Uh, but hopefully in this case, it's a genuine Churchill one. But he's the thing, I've, I've had a lot of trouble in my life, most of which never has never happened. So I think, I don't know, I think if I was doing it all again, I'd, I'd just be a lot more, uh, I'd take, I'd take, I'd take, I think I'd, I'd take more risks, do things more, more, more quickly rather than being kind of cautious. Mm. Yeah, good advice. And if you could banish one thing from the industry, and when I say industry, I mean particularly our world of marketing, yes. what what would that be and, and why? I, 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 I think it would be this it, repeating of myths uh, without looking at the data behind them. So whether that is the decline in trust, uh, the deliverance of millennials or brand purpose, mm. the, as an industry, we've got to move away from taking headlines from magazines or journals or or claims and repeating them without kind of interrogating the data i think that would be one thing yeah okay i was hoping you'd say gary v but that's that's fine i'll accept that answer (laughs) and any any books you can you can recommend to our listeners aside from the choice factory Uh, of course uh so i did um do a post a while ago on 14 i think uh psychology books I'd, I'd recommend uh but i think one some of them would be there's a, a wonderful book called irrationality by stuart sutherland which is one of my favorites i think if you're going to read a single book on psychology uh that would be the one wonderful i mean one of the best thing, things about the book it, it, it fell out of print in the um early 2000s but it was in such high demand amongst people interested in the topic that uh, it was selling for hundreds of pounds on eBay and other kind of second-hand sites. So I think that shows quite how valuable the stuff within it is. You don't have to pay hundreds of pounds any longer. It's now being re-released in the, in, the, in the second edition, but that is an amazing book, very easy to read, and has hundreds of psychology uh, experiments and examples. So that, I think, is a, a, a phenomenal book. Well, I've not read that. So... Mm, oh, yeah, go for that one. And we, we always dedicate the show to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that yeah, honour, yeah. depending on your point of view, to, uh, to our guest. Um, so, so over to you, Richard, on that one. In the Choice Factory, I talk about a lot of experiments that uh, I've done, but I never did those on my own. I was always massively helped by a, a kind of team of uh, researchers. Uh, so... There's probably far, far too many of them to mention, but the the, one, the people who helped probably the most were Jenny Riddell, Claire Linford, Anna Candace-Sammy and Rebecca Strong. So I would never have been to write the book without their help. Uh, but, you know, those experiments, you know, sometimes they're a line in the book, but they would have been standing out on the street. I think you know, Claire stood out on the street asking people how much they'd spent at Pret-a-Manger, you know, hours and hours on end. And so I do owe those uh, four and many others a huge debt of gratitude. Yeah, it's, it's easy to not even consider how some of the results are um, sorted. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's always good. So, yeah, it's, quite, it's quite painful to write only a sentence about them where there's probably uh, yeah, so much work into setting them up and, and, and you know, doing the questioning and surveying. <laughs> okay, so well said. Uh, so as a final call to action, um, please, everyone, if you've enjoyed even a snippet of this podcast you'll adore richard's book so how can they get that richard and, and how else would you encourage they get more richard Chotton? <laughs> uh so well the book's available in most uh websites you can get derek smith or watson's or you know amazon uh so the book's available easily in audible you know uh kindle whatever, whatever format you want on and essentially i do, I do particularly like the audible because it's one of my oldest mates is actually who is an actor 
has done the voiceover, so he's very good. Simon Cole's very good. Uh, yeah, uh, and then in terms of that, the other things I'm doing at the moment are I have just set up a day long training course, so I'm going to try and do those every couple of months. There's one coming out I think on the fourth of March, so you can sign up for that. If you want details, just email me or um, tweet me on Twitter. And then the other thing, yeah, I suppose Twitter, I tweet at R Shotton. And I promise people they will not see pictures of my cat or what I'm eating for dinner tonight. <laughs> it's so you weird. have a cat, though. I do have a cat. I have a cat called Ziggy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> named after uh, David Bowie. Um, uh, and, yeah, sorry, I only tweet about social psychology and advertising. So if people are interested in the topic, then, yeah. If I ever read anything interesting in a book, I'll basically I'll take a photo of that snippet uh, and um, tweet it out. And I'm looking forward. I've got uh, just read... Dave Trott's new book, which is amazing, Creative Blindness. So I'll be tweeting a bit of that uh, soon. And I'm also very excited. I've pre-ordered um, Roy Sutherland's book. I think it's called Alchemy. So when that's out, I'll be tweeting little snippets from that. Well, thank you oh, not so much, Richard, for joining us. Yeah, it's been yeah. a pleasure. And I hope our paths cross before our annual catch-up at Nudgestock. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. Well, that is, I mean, that's the other one. If people are interested in this topic, I mean, Nudgestock is amazing, so... I it couldn't agree more. Absolute steal. I think I, I should have got, maybe we can cut this out at the end, but Oakley could easily charge twice as much. And I think, well, I would certainly pay him. I think most people would pay. It's, yeah, it's I'm, I'm going to edit that bit out. Quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do, <laughs> do. Uh, I might be very popular if they did that. So I think it's 200 quid. And it, yeah. they are, they can't be making that much money from it because they get some, they've got like Nobel Prize winners speaking. It's phenomenal. Uh, every speaker on their list is, is great. So that I will always make it down for that. It is absolutely, and, and, and we're we're delighted that a a speaker from one of the former Nudge Stock, uh, in both previous years, has agreed to join us on the pod soon. So oh, um, more on that soon. Are you keeping that secret? Are you? Oh, okay. <laughs> he emceed last year, and he spoke the year before, so that probably gives it away. Oh, okay. Um, so no, fantastic. I've actually contacted them and requested that Rory has his own stage this year, but whether they act on that or not, I I, I don't know. I, I think you could easily have a kind of Rory stock, couldn't you? Of a, a yeah. day, just <laughs> talking. I'd be up for that. Yeah. Oh, I would be too. Yeah. But um, thank you once again, and thank you to everyone who's willingly let their ears be bent by us for the last hour or so. Don't forget to subscribe in the usual ways, and if you want to get in touch with the show, you can via our website gaspfor.com. Yeah!